You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of No Sudden Move. You said a man wants to see me. Alley out back. Can't come in here. What is he, white? Oh, boy. So what's the score? We're sending a man that works in an office to pick something up. You are part of a babysitting team watching his family while he does it. Good morning. Everything is normal, except... What do you want? Is that something you'd say? Normal Monday? I'm gonna shoot you right now. Can I go home now? Wait at the house after. What do you mean after? Right off of your feet. What is going on? What's going on, big guy? Yeah, what are we doing? We're following instructions. Are you helping me or are you not helping me? No, 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 no. Thank you. Set up, man. God called me. Offering me ten thousand dollars to turn you in, fifteen for the white guy. Think you're the only one that can make a move? I can make a move too. Have the keys. I like to listen to the radio. Uh, I'm gonna shoot you right now. Organized crime, like the mob. Well, I guess that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question. And knock it off of your It's been a long day. I put this over you so I can relax. Thank you. You having a good time? Bang, bang, bang. Knock you off of your So, how'd it go? Take it home with me. We had a little slip up at work. Well, I don't think that's the end of that. Bang, 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 bang. You chickened out? Oh. problem is you're not smart enough to know how not smart you are which makes you unpredictable which makes you untrustworthy why are you doing this man because i'm gonna get what's mine i'm sorry i'm gonna punch you now sir i'm punching you this is going to be a punch. All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for No Sudden Move, and the story is as follows. In 1954, Detroit small-time criminals are hired to steal a document. When their heist goes horribly wrong, their search for who hired them and for what purpose sends them going through all the echelons of the race-torn, rapidly-changing city. The film is starring Don Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro, David Harbour, John Hamm, Amy Simetz, Brendan Fraser, Kieran Culkin, Noah Jupe, Craig Grant, Julia Fox, Frankie Shaw, Ray Liotta, Bill Duke, and, and a surprise cameo appearance, although it's a Steven Soderbergh film, so we shouldn't be surprised, Matt Damon. It is directed by Steven Soderbergh and written by Ed Solomon. Here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Will Mavity. Hello, hello. Is that what the two of you would usually say on a normal podcast Monday? <laughs> yes. It's, it's been what I've been saying since the beginning, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is the latest Steven Soderbergh film. I, I love just saying that right up front, the latest Steven Soderbergh film, because for the longest time we thought that this guy was going to retire, he was done with movies, and he's not only said that once, he's said that multiple times, that he's going to walk away from filmmaking, but he always seems to come back. And the thing I appreciate about Steven Soderbergh is that he never makes the same film twice, Unless if it is, uh, you know, one of the Oceans films. But the genre, I feel like that he has been able to excel at the most 
are these crime caper type of films, the Oceans films, Logan Lucky, and now with no sudden move, done in a very traditional period gangster noir type of way with this all-star cast currently streaming on HBO Max. What did we think of it? Passing it over first to Will Mavity. Yeah, so I would say it is not up to the heights of Soderbergh's very best stuff, you know, his his traffics, but I do think it is probably his best film since 2013, which was the last time Matt is referring to that he told us all he was retiring. He claimed that year that his last film was going to be uh, Behind the Candelabra. And then, of course, you know, he's done a 180 and he's been putting out two movies a year. Not to say some of them haven't been good, but this seemed like a lot of what he does best. Handling a big ensemble, balancing cynical social commentary with also this goofy sense of humor. And um, as Matt said, obviously, heist and crime related. It's a film that definitely bites off more than it can chew. It's, you know, probably deliberately obtuse in the middle of the film, really getting all these overlapping plot points. And sometimes it can be difficult to keep track of. But the plot isn't really the point. The point is more the characters the message and the mood and it does all of that very well so i didn't love it but i was definitely a fan and i i hope we get more of this soderbergh again in the future yeah it's like you kind of have to weave through his experimental films where he's shooting stuff on iphone or god knows what else with these overly convoluted stories but it's like if you have some patience and you wait long enough he'll give you a gem every now and then i i i actually think it's his best probably since logan lucky i was a pretty big fan of that movie but he's done like you said will like what four or five films in between then since (laughs) and that wasn't even that long ago so yeah the guy's constantly working and i'm you know i'm happy that he's constantly working i i mean if every now and then he has to put out a couple of ones that don't resonate as much to get to one, you know, good one, then, you know, I'll, I'll take those odds. Josh, what about you? Uh, I think that a lot of my sentiments are going to be uh, similar to what Will just said. I do think that this movie is like a very solid effort and it does definitely have a lot of the hallmarks of what we have seen in previous Soderbergh movies, like the kind of insidious crime element. Um, Because I was thinking not only just the Oceans movies, I was also thinking about like the Limey too, like early Mm. Soderbergh. Yeah. Yeah. So it was sort of nice to see that kind of style come back um, in a movie that he was working on. I do think that like the story itself, I agree with you, Will, that it feels like it does try to bite off more than it can chew because you not only have like the intricate like MacGuffins happening, which there seems to be multiple of them at, at times, but also this kind of political notion, this uh, commentary that's happening that I sort of feel like it doesn't really go that much into and is more window dressing of the world, which I appreciate on one hand, but also makes it feel like it's a little half baked in terms of its ideas. And eventually I think that contributes to the pacing kind of slowing down for me. So it's a movie that I did enjoy. There's a lot of good performances here, too. I think it's his best-looking film in quite some time, because, as we said, sometimes his shooting style can be kind of 
dirty and grungy and I don't really like it all that much. But uh, it's a movie that I enjoyed. I don't know if it really made a huge lasting impact on me, but in the moment I was very entertained by it. Uh, yeah, I, as I mentioned before, I like when Soderbergh is operating in this zone here, and I think No Sudden Move plays to his strengths in a lot of ways. I actually think that the screenplay by Ed Solomon, I agree with the sentiments that both of you have said here in terms that it probably tries to bite off more than it can chew. But Josh, you're saying that the pacing kind of slows down a bit. I actually think that the movie could have afforded to have been just a tad bit longer to go deeper into uh, some of the lead characters and also um, some more of the window dressing uh, of the world of this 1950s Detroit that's propelled by the automobile industry and kind of going a little bit deeper, almost like in a Chinatown sort of way, which is clearly, I think, what the screenplay is trying to get at here. But it never reaches those emotional highs of that kind of a film. So even at uh, 115 minutes, I wonder if like just pushing it closer to two and a half, maybe like 215 or so could have maybe have done that. But I think the movie moves. Uh, it's very entertaining at times. It's funny. It's also, you know, it's got like this dark humor to it because we're dealing with these criminals who are caught up in sometimes these very uh, ridiculous situations that it, it doesn't like intentionally I think play for laughs in a way that it's like, ah, this is a comedy, but more so like, you know, in a way that just crime can sometimes be unpredictable and you're dealing with high emotions and these guys are really trying to be professionals. They're trying to keep their cool in these really, really tense situations. It does provide for some moments of uh, laughter and levity here. So on the whole, I found this to be very entertaining, um, but Man, Josh, you think this is really his best looking film in a while? Because Steven Soderbergh serves as a cinematographer on this movie. And one of the things I'll just come right out and say uh, pretty early on here is that the cinematography really got on my nerves at some points with some of these wide angle lenses that he was using. Yeah, the distortion drove me crazy. Like he's doing these pans and they're and they're super wide. But it, it just like, why couldn't you do this as just a dolly shot or something like it, it, it just it looked ugly to me at times. I think for me, I would still prefer that to like the very dirty like iPhone look. And this is just a personal yeah, That's fair. Mine. Yeah. Like like a movie like High Flying Bird, for instance, which I actually think is his best movie in a while. But that movie looks horrendous. Like it, it looks really bad and cheap. And while I get that, like, yeah, the wide angle distortions on the sides are distracting at points i think that there is a reason behind it you know because it is somewhat period specific in terms of like the lensing that you would use around that time for a big widescreen movie but it also just feels more polished to me it feels like i'm watching a an actual movie <laughs> and that probably moves me a little bit more to appreciating it especially from soderbergh for me yeah okay i can understand it in that regard and you know it's not like uh let them all talk for example uh lit the world on fire with talk of its cinematography or anything like that. So, yeah, I, I, I guess I can see where you're coming from in that regard, at least. So first things first here, let's talk about the uh, the ensemble, because it's a very, very big cast here. Lots of great names. I want to first start off by asking each of you, uh, who was your standout here? Because I think much like his filmography in terms of all of us having a different answer for what we think was Soderbergh's last best film before this, I'm sure we all maybe have a different answer in terms of who our MVP is here. So, Will, who in the cast stood out to you? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say, I mean, I, it's probably cheating because he is the lead, but I think Don Cheadle has the most to do here. But because that's such an obvious answer, I'm going to give a shout out to Amy Simons, who totally nails the Midwestern accent and vibe in general. And I think really does a lot with not a whole lot of screen time in terms of revealing a lot about that character and her relationship with David Harbour's character. So I think uh, I'll go with Simons is probably my favorite. Josh? Yeah, I think that the first answer would have to be Cheadle just because he is the central anchor to this story. But there are so many really great supporting players that are peppered throughout this film. And I do think that all of them end up making a lot with a little. I think they make a very good impression with kind of shallow characters, to be honest, which is sort of the point of this story, because it really is just more about the intrigue and how the pieces are moving. And I don't know if we get a really big character dive with anybody, but uh, Simons is great. I also, it, they're very small roles in comparison to like what everybody else has in the ensemble, but like people like Brendan Fraser and Bill Duke, like they really left such a great impression on me, yeah. even though they don't have that many scenes. They're not in the movie a whole lot. But every time they showed up, there was just this magnetic screen presence that they had that just immediately like I could have seen a whole movie just about those characters. Oh, One of my yeah. favorite scenes in the movie, if, if not my favorite scene, is actually the sit down that Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro have with Ray Liotta and Brendan Fraser. Cause yeah. just to have all four of them in a scene together is like you said, Josh, it's just so much fun seeing these actors play off of each other, especially someone like Brendan Fraser, who we haven't really seen him on screen in such a high profile film in quite a while. Yeah. I'm excited that hopefully this is the beginning of Brendan Fraser's big comeback year, you know, hopefully yeah. the whale following up, but, uh, I agree with you on Bill Duke, and you're exactly right. I thought there's a scene where he gets to face off against John Hamm with a little monologue that he just fucking crushes. I thought yeah. it was just fantastic. So he's another excellent one. And yeah, and you mentioned Leota. You know, Leota just keeps popping up in these movies, like Marriage Story a couple of years ago, where right? he gives just like really strong, underrated performances. I think I, I messaged someone, uh, I think I messaged our Next Best Picture group chat after watching this. There's um, there was a moment where Ray Liotta's character just casually mentions that he has the clap. And I totally believe that character has the clap. You know, he just <laughs> he is that scuzzy, like, pseudo-criminal type down to a T. So. Yeah, I mean, like, Killing Them Softly, The Place Beyond the Pines, uh, Upcoming Many Saints of Newark. It's funny because he keeps getting cast in like these types of crime films, marriage story withstanding. But it seems like everybody always seems to take notice of him whenever he's cast in a crime film because obviously of his connection to Goodfellas. But I do feel that at this stage in his career and his age, he is just such a strong supporting member to have in your ensemble that even though he's not delivering what I would consider to be like maybe the best performance in the movie, he is just such a strong base to have. Someone like a, like almost like a Chris Cooper, you know, like he's reliable and you know what you're going to get out of him. And he's, like I said, fitting into the role very comfortably, I feel like. Yeah, he's really turning in some like really great character actor work lately. And yeah. uh, he's, he's such a great presence in this film too. He's really good. 
I wish I could say the same thing about Benicio Del Toro, who... I gotta talk about him. I gotta mention this. <laughs> but you know what? I don't think that he's necessarily bad in the movie. I just feel like he just does nothing. He just seems like such a blank void of charisma, and there's nothing for me to, like, really latch onto. And with this type of story where there's not a whole lot of character work and it's really dependent on the performances to hook you. He was one of the people in this ensemble that I was like, there's, there's just nothing here that I'm very interested in following. Coming up on five minute news. I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Hey Hey there! there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Sleepover Cinema, Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. This is something that's been so on my mind these last couple of years because Benicio Del Toro, I think we can all agree, is a great actor, but I think he's a great actor when he's not dialed into this mode where he's doing this effortless, lazy, cool persona, because I think that is what he's going for. Like, it's not so much that he's turning in a bad performance, I think, just because he's, you know, inherently a bad actor. I think it's like he's making a choice but the choice I don't think is working. And it, it, it seems like he turns in this type of performance every now and then it pops up. But then you have something where he's showing like so much energy and so much charisma and stuff like Star Wars or the Avengers movies or um, Sicario, man. Yeah, Sicar- well, Sicario, there was a lot of like mysterious qualities to that character, which which helped with the cool internalized performance he was giving in that but even something like Che where he worked with Soderbergh and he had so much charisma um I I do find it funny that uh the only three times he's worked with Soderbergh has been Che Traffic and now this and I do think obviously I think this is not a you know this isn't a giant leap to make here but I think this is probably my least favorite of the three collaborations he's had with Soderbergh yeah and once again it's not because I think he's a bad actor the, just the choice of how he's choosing to play this role and other roles I've seen him in as of late, it, it just doesn't work for me. Contrast that with someone like Cheadle here, who, I, I mean, like, he's doing a voice change. He's got great screen presence. You know, like, you really believe that this is a very dangerous man, where I don't really get that with uh, Ronald Russo, the Benicio Del Toro character. 
No. Well, it also just feels like his stakes in the story just always felt at arm's length to me a little bit. Like, I don't think Don Cheadle is doing like a really big performance either, but there is something about you understanding his involvement with what's going on in the story. And it feels so kind of naturalistic in the way that Cheadle's able to play that character, that that is still worthy of kind of investing in his stake in the story. And I just never felt that from Benicio del Toro. It, it just seemed like he was giving a decent performance. Like it's fine, but it just really didn't match the same kind of, energy level that I really wanted to kind of get invested in his uh, plight. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if it's like so much of a spoiler at this point. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I mean, he is advertised in the official cast billing. What did you guys think of Matt Damon's uh, big one scene in this movie? Because uh, prior to uh, this film streaming on uh, HBO Max and, you know, the him, it actually being adver- him actually being advertised with this film, I actually had no idea that he was involved. So when he popped up, I let out like a howling laughter of, of course, of yeah. course, Matt Damon has a cameo in a movie. Dude, they've got to stop having like surprise Matt Damon. It, like it, it genuinely, unless it's like a comedy like Deadpool where it's the point, it never fails to take me out of a movie when Matt Damon just pops up. You know, he's and he did. A, he was fine here in selling that monologue. I think someone else could have done it better. Someone who's more of just a character actor. Is that what it is? Like he's such a big movie star. Like it's distracting for you. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. And you know, he's, you know, as he ages, he, he fits more into the part of the kind of character he's trying to play. Um, He's fine, but yeah, I mean, the entire time, all I can think about is like, Oh, it's Matt Damon. And I see Matt Damon. I don't see the character. Yeah. I don't know, like that. I a character like that who I really want to hate and who really should exist to really hammer home the film's cynical message. I needed not Matt Damon for that. Mm. I mean, I <laughs> I think first of all, just surprise Matt Damon cameos are a fun oddity that you're always like sort of happy at least initially because it's like you can spot it and then it's like oh well now this is like a thing now and i wish it would kind of (laughs) stop i don't want to be surprised by matt damon anymore (laughs) but on the other hand i think that he's also fine in that scene i agree but the issue that i kind of come to is that there's a lot in this movie that is relying on in my opinion doing a lot of telling and not showing which Mm -hmm. is the nature of a lot of mysteries i grant you But there's so many scenes where I feel like characters are just kind of standing around and explaining things that are happening. And eventually that did really start to wear me down a little bit because I never really found myself like that invested in the MacGuffin in the first place, which Mm -hmm. I don't need to be because these types of movies never really want you to do that much heavy lifting. But with so many people kind of explaining it and making it seem like it would be important. I never felt like the story matched that level of intensity that the characters themselves seem to be explaining all of this to. So that was one scene that was very similar to many others of the movie trying so hard to kind of get me interested in the story itself, but I never really found myself connecting with it on that deep of a level. See, like everything about the automobile industry and like what the story is ultimately about, like, in a lot of ways, like other noir films, I tend to not necessarily care. 
Um, for me, it's more about the characters and am I emotionally attached to uh, them and what they're going through. And this movie definitely has that honor amongst thieves, the the code, if you will, that they all share uh, with one another in terms of respect, loyalty, and uh, the hustle. You know, there's a lot of double crossing going on in this and people making uh, moves, quote unquote, against one another that that part of the plot was the stuff that I found to be the most entertaining and most fun, especially in the film's final 10, 15 minutes or so, where there's a lot of unexpected deaths that occur and a lot of double crosses where this person's all of a sudden working for this person, this person's out for their own self-interest and they're willing to cross this person in order to get the money, et cetera, et cetera. That's the stuff that I found to be more compelling than anything. I... I do have to agree, though, that realistically, when we did get to that section, like emotionally, the only character I actually did care about by the end was Don Cheadle. And I feel like the movie wanted me to care about more than just him. Uh, So I do see that as a failure on the screenplay for that part. Yeah, like Benicio, I think that's a prime example. I mean, there are things that happen towards the end of the film that I think really should have been more surprising and impactful. And instead, it's just kind of like, oh, I, I do think part of the benefit of that is this is an astonishingly cynical movie. Like, mm-hmm. it's really bleak in what it's saying. But because of kind of the superficial way it handles a lot of this, it ends up being pretty fun. It's like the the most fun I can remember having had watching a movie that is this objectively depressing. See, there's one final thing that the movie could have done with a character that I won't mention because it's too big of a spoiler to say what it, what it could have been. But the movie makes it seem like it's going that way uh, because another character states that this character x character is going to die so the movie makes you think that that's going to happen but then it does kind of leave us on i don't want to say a happy note but let's just say i think this movie could have been more cynical and depressing possibly will than it does go in the end oh but see see i think choosing to have that because like instead of just the machines going to destroy you i think how it ends instead is even more cynical because that person ends up exactly where they were and where they were going to be in literally the exact state in their life that they were had none of this happened. So I think even more, it's just saying no matter what you do, nothing's going to change and your life's never going to improve. So sure, I mean, that person could have been, you know, could have died. But I think it's almost more of just like, oh, God, like we're just, you know, and that really... uh hammers home you know matt damon's character talks about like he's addressing benicio and don Cheadle, and he's saying like against the odds you guys have risen up from um you know your state in life to like meet with someone that life should have never even allowed you to meet you've somehow done it so i think like having a um having an ending that just completely returns everything to the status quo was almost more cynical. You know, on a macro level, I think I agree with you. Yeah, Yeah, that's good. I like that. What do you think, Josh? Yeah, I mean, I think especially if you consider sort of the sense of humor that the movie has that goes into very dark areas at times, it reminded me a lot of kind of like a like a Fargo tale where it's these group of criminals that 
are competent, but also a little inept and take these very wide routes to basically get back to where they started from. <laughs> and I do like that kind of a concept. I'm a very big fan of those types of stories. And there's elements in here that do definitely pull me in. I think my issue is that sort of overall, it weights certain parts of the story kind of heavier than others. And I just never really get that connection. Like the whole thing with the automobile industry, normally I would say, yeah, that is just kind of throwaway. It's just meant to kind of get the plot moving. But the movie does end with a very stated message about what the auto industry was doing around this time. And when we get to that moment at the end of the movie, I'm sort of like, Oh, this was oh, this was like important. This is what you wanted to talk about. This is what the movie's actually about because I did not really get that like at all. I did was not invested in that section of the story at all. And I wish that if that was the case, the movie would have done a little bit more to pull me into those sections instead of me feeling like this is just a MacGuffin. Let me just move on to the next like funny situation that Don Cheadle's in. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, maybe another 15 minutes or so, I don't know, could have fleshed that out a bit more. Maybe the ensemble's too big and they spend too much time spreading the screen time out amongst everybody and it detracts from hitting those themes a little bit harder there, uh, Josh. But still, despite that, like, the di- I think what I responded to the most was the dialogue between the characters. Mm-hmm. I am a sucker, huge sucker for tough guy crime film speak. I don't know why. Maybe it's the Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese fanboy in me. I don't know what it is. but You know, Matt, it's funny that you bring up Tarantino because there was one moment where I actually did wonder about something, and it's Uh when they um, go into the Wurtz's house and they're all, like, talking in the kitchen, and the son, the Noah Jupe character, actually says, like, why are you talking like we're having a normal conversation and it almost to me made me think is that like a call out to tarantino and like the stuff that we see in movies like pulp fiction where there's these heightened emotions happening and everybody's just talking like the they're having these weird one-off conversations like it's a normal day i almost wondered if it was a direct sort of commentary to movies and screenplays like that probably unintentional but at the same time i think that is uh a funny observation that could be maybe but i don't know i i doubt that at the same time i think it's pretty cool to think about though especially considering like i said some of the dialogue in this i think definitely is trying to riff on that tarantino style of just casual everyday speak between criminals who it's like well, we don't want to just show that these are bad men. We want to show that they're bad men with emotions and with with a soul and they actually have priorities and care about things and so on and so forth. You know, we want to humanize them. Yeah, it's a little um, Elmore Leonard, too, kind of that flavor in the story as mm. well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so in terms of final thoughts then on No Sudden Move, uh, anything that we did not mention that you want to mention, Will? No, I mean, you pretty much covered it. It's, it's a movie where... There's not that much to talk about. It has some interesting subtext and it's fun, but it's probably not going to stick with me throughout much of the year. No, I think it's just an entertaining watch, something that you can just put on for the weekend if you had nothing to do, really. Uh, Josh, what about you? Uh, Two very quick things I want to mention. One, uh, Kieran Culkin was, I think, very miscast. He just does not feel like somebody from 1954. I'm sorry. He's a very modern type of actor and, he really took me out of the movie. I love him dearly, but 
I think he was very much miscast in this. I'm a hundred percent in agreement with you on this. I like Julia Fox too. I thought both of them seemed too modern. Oh, actually, Julia Fox fit in that role for me as far as what she was being painted as and what she was pretending to be. I think it was more so when she has her ulterior motives uh, revealed. That's when I started wondering, like to your point, well, if maybe her performance and what she was going for was a bit too modern for the film's time period. Yeah. Although I just found, found her to be like a fun presence that I tolerated it. Kieran Culkin just never really meshed that well with the material. And that was distracting for me. Yeah. But uh, one element that I did like is I did really like the music to this. And David Holmes doesn't work with Soderbergh like consistently. It's very on and off, but uh, he's mostly known for like doing all the oceans movies. And I do like the music in those films too. And, you know, I don't know if I would say it's like an amazing score, but I thought it fit the tone of the movie very well. And I did enjoy it a good deal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. I actually thought it helped with the overall vibe of the film pretty greatly at times. Uh, my final thoughts. I actually thought David Harbour was fantastic in this. Yeah. I really thought that he was funny. Uh, all of his heightened emotions and all of his scenes, I thought he nailed them perfectly, whether it was with Amy Seitmetz or if it was with um, Frankie Shaw, who plays uh, his boss's secretary, or that scene with his boss. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to punch you, sir. This is going to be a punch. <laughs> Amazing. I love my job. This is shows you how serious the situation is. <laughs> Props to Noah Jupe for just continuing to crush it with the roles he's been getting lately. Uh, the kid is only uh what, 15, 16 years old and he's got a good agent. I'll give I'll give him some credit for that. Yeah, and for me it was a big redemption from A Quiet Place Part 2. Okay, fair, fair. John Ham I'm glad he's part of this cast. Welcome presence at the same time. Uh, nothing really new here. And quite frankly, I just, I don't know. It, it almost seemed like it was one of those things where like as predictable as the Matt Damon surprise cameo is, it's now nowadays like super predictable that John Hamm is either going to play a criminal or a cop in a movie. Yeah. So I, I just kind of want to see him maybe diversify just a little bit with some of the roles he's getting. And if he feels like he's getting typecast, you know, try to change it up with something different at this point, because I'm telling you, like, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head here, but like he plays a cop in Richard Jewell, the town, this, he plays a criminal in bad times at the El Royale, uh, baby driver, you know, it's like, I just would like to see something different for a change. That's all. Well, you forgot Wild Mountain Time. Oh, God. <laughs> That's different. I've tried really hard to forget Wild Mountain Time, Josh. Thank you for bringing it back. I, I, I understand. You, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. But yeah, I, I thought it was a fun time. Definitely flawed. Not as great as some of Soderbergh's greatest, like you said, Will. I, I don't know when he'll ever reach the highs of Traffic and uh, Aaron Brockovich, you know, ever again. Uh, even some of his very early work, like Sex, Lies, and Videotape, I think is um, better than anything he's been doing lately. But, you know, movies, like I said, like Logan Lucky, I did like Unsane. Uh, side effects I actually find to be pretty underrated as well. Contagion now hits differently. The guy is a very, very interesting filmmaker because it does feel like he's always constantly challenging himself and he's 
not someone that I, I don't think that he has a distinct directorial style because of the fact that he's always challenging himself. Like he wants to tell his stories in a different way, stylistically, or, you know, maybe he just wants to tackle a different genre. And that is something that, you know, despite producing one of the worst Oscar ceremonies I've seen in quite some time, I still respect the hell out of the guy. I'm giving No Sudden Move a 7 out of 10. Josh, what about you? I'm also going to give it a 7. It's kind of a low 7, to be honest, but I had fun with it. I don't think I will really think about this movie for too long afterwards, but in the moment, it was enjoyable. It was entertaining, so that's where I'm at, a 7 out of 10. Will? Exact same with me. Sorry to be so boring. (laughs) <laughs> it's quite all right in terms of awards potential for this movie uh no, i don't see it happening nah. I, I i think if like if it was just a tad bit better the screenplay could have gone somewhere but as is i don't see anything for this movie in its future as far as its awards chances go no i i don't think so and a lot of soderbergh movies never really do that much below the line either even though i think that like I know there's a disagreement on the cinematography, but like the sets and costumes, they're they're they do look good, but I don't think they rise to the level of like serious consideration for anything at the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's it's the Black Panther team did the production design too, yeah. which is good at evoking that era of Detroit. But again, yeah, nothing you know, no nothing like life changing there. No. And it you know, it's funny because if you look back at the filmography other than the Emmy success that he had with Behind the Candelabra, um, he really hasn't had a serious awards contender since Traffic and Aaron Brockovich. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of his mode now, though. He just sort of makes his own peculiar movies. That's what he's always been doing, and it's always been kind of whether or not the Academy itself will go for it. Yeah, yeah. Justice for Daniel Craig for supporting actor for Logan Lucky. Just oh saying. my God, I, <laughs> I completely agree. Honestly, I think they should have they should have run him supporting for um, for <laughs> Knives Out anyway because he's he's bringing that same character back. Uh, all right, well that'll conclude our review of No Sudden Move here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Will tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Mavericks Movies. Josh. I'm on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, 
toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) (laughs) Right.